The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. As you know, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we conclude Matthew 25, which will conclude Jesus' teaching on the end. And in today's passage, Jesus will say things that we struggle with in our cultural moment. We struggle with judgment, particularly judgment that has finality, particularly judgment with finality from an authority external to ourselves. This passage, though, is the truth of the glorious return of our Lord Jesus. To picture how we struggle with this finality, though, I was reading about Duke philosophy professor Alex Rosenberg. He released a book in 2012 called The Atheist Guide to Reality, and in it he answers some questions. I'll read to you his answers to these questions. Is there a God? The Duke professor says, no. What is the nature of reality? The Duke professor says, what physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? The Duke professor says, there is none. What is the meaning of life? He says, ditto. Why am I here? He says, just dumb luck. Does prayer work? The Duke professor, of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Duke, are you kidding? Is there free will? Duke, not a chance. What happens when I die? The Duke professor says, everything pretty much goes on as before except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? He answers, there is no moral difference. Why should I be moral? He answers, because it'll make you feel better than being immoral. The rise of the therapeutic. (laughs) Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? His answer, anything goes. It's interesting that Duke has a chapel on campus given these answers. In the 21st century, as Westerners, we hate the idea of conclusive judgment, clear right and wrong, finality, and an external authority. And yet, like sterile paint that's covering up a vibrant color, there are cracks in which our conscience can't handle the fact that apart from full and final judgment, life here would be totally unsatisfying. There's a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin who's written a helpful book confronting Christianity. In one of her chapters, she shares about a book by Sam Harris called Free Will. Even her recounting of the book is so graphic that I can't can't share all the details. It was hard for me to read. But in Sam's book called Free Will, he talks about two men who broke into the home of a family. And what they did to that family are all the most unimaginable, unspeakable, and awful things. But then Sam Harris says this. These criminals had no choice in the matter. Their actions were entirely determined by their neurological state. And then Sam writes this. The idea that we as conscious beings are responsible for the character of our lives is impossible to map onto reality. And yet, don't you feel the cracks underneath that sterile paint? And don't you long for justice? See, in fact, if we can't with any moral clarity say that anything is definitively wrong, then how can we commend anything as good? Which is why Rebecca writes this. 
Sophie Scholl, whose anti-Nazi pamphlets fluttered down from the top of the university atrium, could not be appreciated. Just as the janitor who reported her to the Gestapo and the Nazi guards who beheaded her cannot be judged. If we can't judge the ISIS people who have held people as sex slaves, neither can we commend Harriet Tubman for her courage risking her life. If we can't condemn Larry Nasser, the USA national gymnastics doctor who sexually abused more than 250 young girls, then neither does Rachel Den Hollander, the first woman to accuse him, truly love her children. See, Rebecca's point is that if we're not able to say evil is evil, then we dare not say love is love. <laughs> How could we commend anything if there's nothing that can be condemned? In today's passage, we're going to read about a final and clear judgment that will separate people eternally based on the all-seeing perfection of the judge. You see, that sterile paint that's trying to cover our conscience when it cracks out, what it's longing for is a perfect judge to set all things right. And friends, his name is Jesus. <laughs> and he is returning. And this passage, the end of Matthew 25, concludes what Jesus has been talking about through chapter 24 and 25. He's been talking about the end. But in chapter 24, he talked about how to wait for the end. And then in chapter 25, up till this point, he talked about how to prepare for the end. But now here in chapter 25, and today we'll begin in verse 31, he tells us what happens at the end, which is why today's sermon is titled, The End of the End. As humans, we've wondered how the world ends. And for the last couple of years, that's been more on the front of our mind than maybe for a long time. How does the world end? T.S. Eliot wrote, This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. But the last 20 years of Hollywood blockbusters have had the world ending through apocalyptic nuclear scenarios. Some in the scientism community think the world ends when the sun will burn out millions and millions of years from now. You know how the world ends? The king returns, and he judges everyone. This is the way the world ends. We hate that reality, and we want to resist it. That's why Dylan Thomas wrote, Do not go gentle into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Or we try to deny that the end will come. But the reality is life will end for each one of us. And then it will continue eternally, but in one of two places. So this morning, the end of the end. If you have a bulletin, let me just tell you the three points and then try to walk through them uh, with, with humble clarity. It's a sobering passage. Number one will be the final judgment, eternally separating humanity. Number two we'll find that at the final judgment, everyone's surprised. And number three, we'll find at the final judgment that the dividing line came down to one person. So number one, the final judgment, eternally separating humanity. Please look in God's word in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. First Advent, which is what we remember at Christmas, is when Jesus came in veiled glory, the dawn of salvation. But second Advent, when Jesus returns, 
is when he returns in unveiled glory, the setting and the consummation. Here we see in verse 31, he comes with all the angels with him, and now he sits on his glorious throne. In fact, in verse 34 and 40, he will be called the king, and this is when his kingdom comes. Now, this passage will also do something that a careful reader of the Old Testament will notice. These descriptions, son of man, that's from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, with all his angels, that's from Joel 3, on his glorious throne, also referring to Zechariah 14, 5. Here, here's what I want you to notice. The New Testament is calmly attributing to Jesus what in the Old Testament was attributed to Yahweh alone. Here's what that means. C.S. Lewis put it really well. Jesus Christ, as he presents himself, is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord Almighty. There is no other option for us. He presents himself clearly as someone who can judge all of humanity, who can ascribe to himself what was once only said of Yahweh. And notice what he will do in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All nations can be easily misunderstood. The Greek word is ethne. That's where we get our English word ethnicities from, meaning peoples. But don't think in terms of nation states. You'd be missing it there. And don't think in terms of Gentiles. Yes, the word does sometimes refer to Gentiles or unbelievers. It's not what he's doing here. Think of how the Gospel of Matthew ends in chapter 28. He says, go make disciples of all, and it's the same Greek word there, nations. He's not telling Jews to go reach Gentiles. He's telling disciples to go reach any non-disciple. So the word nation is actually connected with the word people, and that refers to every individual Meaning that at this final judgment, the Lord judges everyone, including you and me. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. In the first century, a shepherd out during the day would have both sheep and goats intermingled. But at night, he separates them. And this is night. In the Bible, the right hand is a place of honor. The left hand is a place of disgrace. Now, already at this point, you could be objecting in your mind. Well, Josh, surely this is a figurative parable. This isn't really going to happen, is it? I mean, shepherds, sheep, goats. But remember, he's already told four parables that were how we prepare for the end. This is a vision of the end. Yes, the word shepherd, sheep, and goats are similes. But the following descriptions are too vivid. R.T. France puts it well. Though often described as a parable, this is not an illustrative story, but the vision of the future. This is how it all ends. So now verse 34. Then notice, and I love this, the king. The son of man is the king, and now his kingdom has come. And so he will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a good God that from the foundation of the world he's prepared this kingdom for those who receive it by grace. We know the sheep receive it by grace because Jesus has begun the Sermon on the Mount, his first discourse saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The three basic needs being met, food, shelter, and companionship. Number one, at the final judgment, humanity is eternally separated. But now number two on your bulletin, everyone's surprised. Can I show you this? Look in verse 37. We'll just read this quickly and then we'll go back through it. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or prison or busy? You see, they're surprised. But look now down to verse 44. It's not just the sheep who are surprised. Here's the answer of the goats. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or imprisoned and did not minister to you? Everyone is surprised at the final judgment. But note this well. No one is surprised where they're going. They all knew where they were going. No one's surprised on that point. What they're surprised about is that their life's compelling direction and motivation had been unwittingly displayed their entire life. What they're surprised about is that their whole life testified to who they truly loved and they didn't even know it. So now look again in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you? When did we see you? Verse 35, verse 39, when did we see you? And now notice verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now this is the most important phrase in the whole passage, so we have to pause there. Who are the least of these? Who are the least of these? Let me be very, very clear, and I can give you all my notes. I always have to cut many pages out, so I can give you all my notes if you want to email me about that later. I want to be as clear as I possibly can this morning. The least of these are not the socioeconomically poor. They are not people who have it worse off than you. The Bible in many places tells us to care for the poor. Think of Amos in the Old Testament. Think of James in the New Testament. Think of Jesus in Matthew 6, talking about giving alms to the poor. This is not one of those places. He is not talking about those who have it worse off than you. Nor is he talking about Jews. Who is he talking about? Look in verse 40 again. Who are the least of these? They are his brothers. And who is Jesus' brother? He answered that in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his familial brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But then Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and my brothers? And 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Who are Jesus' brothers? His followers. This passage then is not saying that you earn heaven by being kind to people less fortunate than you. 
It is not teaching that. It is saying those who are received by the Lord are those who have loved the Lord's people because they love the Lord their whole life. Jesus is emphatically not saying that kind people make it to heaven, though PBS tells my children that every morning. (laughs) Jesus is actually surprising them because he's pointing out that who you truly love was exposed your whole life. Who you truly love was actually exposed your whole life in who you treated a certain way. In the end, we're not judged by our niceness or charity generally. We're judged by who we truly loved. Which is why now number three, missing what's all around us, the dividing line comes down to one person. How did Jesus conclude verse 40? Who did they really love when they loved the brothers? You did it to me. So now notice verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What a sobering verse. This verse has hit me more than maybe any others this week, and I've been moved by it and prayed for it and asked God to help me communicate it to you well. It's extremely sobering. I want you to notice a couple things about how good God is. Who was this fire prepared for? Not for these goats, but for the devil and his angels. Very often over the years, I've met someone who's told me, you know, Josh, I would be a Christian, but I just can't accept how a good God could send people to hell. And there are many answers I could give to that, and you've heard me give some in this pulpit. But let me just say this one today. Do you know that's why the cross is so beautiful? You see, if you struggle with eternal fire, how much more should you be amazed by eternal life? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. If you struggle that there's eternal fire, you should be more amazed that the verses before John three sixteen, Jesus says, even as the serpent was lifted up in the days of Moses, so the son of man, yeah, the son of man who comes back as a king, the son of man allowed himself to be nailed to a tree. Be amazed with eternal life. That's why Jesus is warning us here. In all the parables that led up to this, he's told us about the wicked servant who was left on the outside, the bridesmaids who were left on the outside, the worthless servant who was cast into weeping and gnashing in teeth. Now he tells us about eternal fire. These chilling descriptions are given by Jesus so that we will escape them. Verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying in verse 44, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, the brothers, you did not do it to me. Both the sheep and the goats are surprised because they lived authentically based on who they truly loved. And the dividing line of humanity is whether or not you love Jesus, and that's found in whether or not you love his body on earth. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The righteous go into eternal life because they love the body of Christ, because they love Jesus. The goats spurn the body of Christ, and they eternally spurn Jesus. Trevin Wax writes, Before Jesus' throne on the last day, there will be only two kinds of people and only two final destinations. Some will inherit the kingdom that was prepared for them from the beginning of time. Others will be sent to an everlasting judgment never intended to be theirs. But this passage makes clear something Jesus has already been saying. How we respond to Jesus' body is how we respond to Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus is telling his disciples, those who receive my followers receive me. Those who receive me receive the Father. So hear this this morning. Heaven's door is not open by human kindness, but by the humble love of one forgiven of much in her love for her Savior and his family. Jesus explains this, but let me try to explain it to you in more simple terms. Let's set aside for a moment that there are phony Christians. Let's set all those aside for a moment and picture a sinner saved by grace, but a sincere Christian. Now picture that Christian in his or her workplace. And in his or her workplace, they are genuine and they declare Jesus and they display Jesus. And for years, they are mocked by their coworkers for being faithful to their spouse, for speech that avoids vulgarity and crudeness, for protecting and promoting human life, for faith in God's promises, for regular gathering with other Christians. When that Christian is mocked for years, for decades by their coworkers, isn't that a mockery of Jesus? Isn't it a rejection of Jesus? I think this passage is harder for us in America because in America, up until very recently, you can be a phony Christian or a real Christian and there's very little social cost. But picture a sincere believer in the Middle East and they're rejected by their neighbor and their family. Isn't that a rejection of Jesus? This is what Jesus is telling us. To reject his body is to reject him. So hear this this morning. At the final judgment, many Americans, some from Raleigh, will discover that they are goats, though they have given to various charities indiscriminately for years, but remained hostile to Christ's body and to Christ himself. On the flip side, many Americans, some from Raleigh, who at one point in their life said, I believe in Jesus, but the rest of their life hated Christians, will learn that they too are goats. 
Because hatred of the body of Christ is hatred of the person of Christ. See, the big reminders of Matthew 24 and 25, history is going somewhere. There is a final judgment. There is a final authority. And there is ultimate clarity. And our life will go on forever. We are not random atoms bouncing around. There are not cycles of repetition. There's no annihilation in which you cease to exist. How you live reveals what you love, and you will be with what you love forever. And if we misunderstand the future, we'll misunderstand the present. In the end, there's only two destinations, and there's only two lanes, and they divide on one person. But here's the wonderful news. The praise for the sheep is not due to the sheep. As Jesus said in John 10, the thief comes through to break and to steal and destroy, but I am the good shepherd and the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. See, the sheep are only saved because the shepherd became a sheep himself. And then the Lamb of God, who is spotless, bore the spots of all of us so that we could receive his spotlessness through his victory on the cross. See, the blood of the Lamb is why the sheep are white, not something that they've done. This passage then reminds us that Matthew's gospel is not over. Chapter 26, 27, and 28 are all about the crucifixion. And Jesus doesn't die to be a model of niceness. He dies because we're not nice enough. He dies to bear our sin as he was originally named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But the final judgment that we read about here in verses 31 through the end reminds us of one more thing. The final judgment is never about a final place, but about a final person. See, heaven in biblical terms is not really primarily a place. Heaven in biblical terms is a relationship with a person. It's the prodigal son come home. It's the reunion of parties once estranged. Didn't we read earlier from Revelation 20? We will be his people and he will be our God. And that's why hell in the Bible is about the rejection of a person. And if Jesus is the bread of life, then hell means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, hell means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, hell means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then hell means eternal death. But what a sobering thought it is to think that the goats will face the wages of their own rejection and the hand that points them eternally left was pierced and would have paid for their sin. You know, yesterday I had the joy of going on visitation thanks to people in our church who coordinated that. And one of the people I visited with, I started to ask them the questions I always try to ask when I sit with people. Um, I wanted to ask them about their relationship with God. And to be honest with you, they gave me the answers I usually get, which are something like this. I grew up in church and my parents read me the Bible and when I was a little kid I was baptized. And all that's great, but then I always ask, that's neat, but do you remember ever 
realizing that you needed to be saved and asking God to save you. Even if you can't remember the day, do you you remember that realization? And thankfully, this person yesterday said this to me. They said, well, actually, Josh, I do. I was at Emmanuel Baptist Church when Pastor Holt was preaching. So it was a while ago. (laughs) And when he was preaching, Pastor Holt said this, and I wrote it down. He said, if you're iffy about Jesus today, it will be worse than iffy for you on Judgment Day. (laughs) And when that person heard that sentence in that sermon many years ago, he said, I realized that what I had grown up with and what I had heard was not enough. I had to commit my life to Jesus. Listen to me this morning. You cannot be iffy and have confidence you'll be with the sheep. You must ask the blood of the Lamb to cleanse your sins. You must call on the name of the Lord. And if you do, you will be saved. This is the blessing of the gospel. Now, Christian, this is the way the world ends. So how should we live as we wait? Friday, I was vividly reminded that two parties can have the same amount of time, but approach it very, very differently. My wife entrusted me with a huge responsibility Friday. I was supposed to pick up our kids from school. You want to hear how it went? (laughs) Uh, They were no doubt looking at the clock thinking at 2.30 it's over and I'm free. And I was looking at the clock thinking I have a lot that I need to get done before 2.30. And sure enough, 2.30 came and passed and I realized, oh man, I blew it. This was my one chance. And I'm in the car driving on the way to get them and my wife calls And she does the kind of thing only a wife can do. She said, oh, hey, how are the kids? And she had already received a call from the school. She knew I didn't have the kids. So I'm on my way. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. I'm trying to call the school. I can't get in touch with them. Thankfully, I finally get there, finally able to pick up the kids. And there's this sweet reunion. But they were approaching that time totally different than I was. Now, Christ will return, and all of us will have had the same amount of time, but we'll approach that same amount of time totally differently based on our love of the Lord of history. Listen, Christian, if you love the Good Shepherd, then you will love his family. Those of you who perhaps have experienced loss, haven't you ever loved someone in part because they remind you of the person you lost. Think of a spouse who's lost their spouse but kind of sees glimpses of their spouse and their children. Or those of you who've raised your children, don't you like hanging out with your grandkids because they give you glimpses of what it was like when your kids were that age? See, we love the body of Christ because there are glimpses of our Lord in that body. And so we feed that body and we clothe that body and we visit that body because we love the Lord who gave his life for that body. In that way, we reveal what we always loved and what we always loved was Jesus. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, I thank you, Lord, that there will be a day that you return. And that day does not have to be dreaded. (laughs) That day can be celebrated. And that day is celebrated when we love the Lord, who is the good shepherd, who has purchased our salvation with his own blood. 
in a moment, Lord, as we transition into communion. Remind us how beautiful it is to be with the body of Christ that gives us glimpses of our good shepherd. There's no doubt that all of us are imperfect glimpses, for sure. And upon close inspection, we fall short terribly, but we have been washed by the blood of our Lamb. And we are new creatures. And you are finishing the work that you began in us. And one day it will be complete. When we see you, we will be like you, for we will see you face to face. So as we wait, we wait differently. Because we know what's coming. And we have this urgent desire to serve and to love and to live with joy. But Lord, I I pray for anyone today that maybe has had objections and they've been iffy. Help them to move from iffy to faith. Because Lord, to be uncertain is a terrible spot to be in. But there's no need for them to be cast where the goats are because that was prepared for the devil. May they instead receive the kingdom that was prepared for God's people. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you came and we thank you that you're coming again. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.